Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Psalm 124 is our sermon text this morning. Let's stand for the reading of Psalm 124. is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. A song of ascents of David. Had it not been the Lord, excuse me, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us, the stream would have swept over our souls. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would... Give us a focus on your glory, a focus on what your will is from your word. Father, that you would be pleased by every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So Psalm 124, we've been, we've been bouncing around in the Psalms, so during the week, uh, early in the week, I'll flip through the Psalms, that's been the way that I've found the next Psalm that I'm preaching on, it's nothing more sophisticated than that. And uh, this Psalm struck me this week. You'll notice that it is one of the Psalms of Ascents, we talked about that uh, a few weeks ago. But the psalm begins with a statement of God's, about God's protection. Statement about God's protection. In this repeated phrase, and it's repeated for em- emphasis, we learn that it is Yahweh that was on the side of his people Israel. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. So let's stop. there for a moment and think about that proclamation. Think about where and what we would be without God on our side. Psalm 94, the psalmist writes, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If the Lord hadn't been my help, I would have died. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read this blessing of Moses upon the tribes of Israel. The blessing then concludes with this, I would call it a hymn, a hymn of praise to their God who was their help, the one who was on their side, Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help. What a beautiful image. God rides the heavens to your help. And through the skies in his majesty, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms, 
And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also dropped down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty? So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. What a glorious hymn of praise to the God who who protects his people. And yet, by the end of the Old Testament, the enemies of God had ground Jerusalem into dust. Knocked the temple into a pile of rubble, dragged Israel's leaders off by hooks in their nose, and removed the vast majority of the people from the promised land. Why? Why did that happen? Why with these promises? Because because the people of Israel had made alliances with foreign nations, they had worshipped and served those nations' gods. And God, being a jealous God, recompensed them for their wickedness as he warned them by the mouth of Moses in the curses of chapter 28 in Deuteronomy. If they would not follow God or obey God, then this would happen. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger in thirst, in nakedness, in lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. That's being said of Israel. It's being said of the people of God. That's being said of the Old Testament church. How then can the people of God sing, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. How is it that we can look around and see the wicked prospering and the church being mocked and despised and persecuted worldwide? How how is it that we can be singled out for ridicule because of what we believe from his word? Doesn't it seem seem at times as if the Lord has forsaken his people? Doesn't it seem hard to think that the omnipotent God is on our side when we go about as if sheep led to the slaughter. It seems there is defeat everywhere. The foundations are crumbling. Our children have a bleak future. The freedoms we have long enjoyed in this nation, freedom to assemble, freedom to worship, freedom to speak, are vilified and attacked. We constantly endure indoctrination from media. and I mean, we get indoctrinated by our sports leagues for crying out loud, and from Fortune 500 companies, we are indoctrinated, telling us our ideals for marriage, our ideals for education, and the beginning and ending of life of, and, and society are wicked and oppressive. How is the Lord on our side? How are we not being swallowed alive by angry mobs? How are our very souls not being swept over by raging waters and the torrent that comes forth from the mouths of the wicked? Well, the first thing to say is this. 
as it went with Israel, so perhaps now it is going for the church in this nation. And the division we are currently enduring because of face masks is not because it is known that COVID-19 is a deadly killer or is not a deadly killer, but because God is using this as a judgment to purify his church. Could it be that we, the church, have cast a longing eye to the world? So as God observes her and her people, he can't help but, but loathe our dependency on other things other than himself. The church in America is rich. Rich. We just read that passage in Mark. It's very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Church in America is rich. Perhaps the church in America is more rich than the Vatican was during the time of Luther. Maybe vastly more rich than that time. And you know what Luther said. Luther said, you should just take the wealth you have and buy everybody out of purgatory. But we're richer. And being rich, we hoard our wealth like the pagans hoard their wealth, trusting in it to the exclusion of dependence upon God Almighty. Does that grieve God? Church in America is prayerless. We don't pray. We do not seriously pray. When was the last time you heard anyone say that they were satisfied in their prayer life? When was the last time you had any participation in a prayer meeting that went beyond just a fraction of the church? We don't pray. And if, if, if a lack of prayer is an indication of anything, it's an indication of a lack of dependence upon God. Church in America is lukewarm. We don't live dispassionate lives by any means. We don't live dispassionate lives, but our passions are directed toward our entertainments rather than to the worship of God Almighty. How, how often do we resent having to come to a Bible study? How often do we resent having to log on for a Bible study? And so we don't. We just don't. We can do without. How often do we sing His praises, mouth, uh, a word of thanks, delight to read his word, meditate on his glory, speak to our own children about his greatness, cry our eyes out as we confess our sins to him, plead with him for the souls of our children. How often do we do that? The lukewarmth of our faith is proven by that which we spend our time on. Do I think we should become monks? And fake all-day meditation? No. Of course not. Do I think our prayer, our only prayer to God should be a rushed prayer before meals? That should not be. The zeal of God's people is proven most in their willingness to give themselves to prayer. Something an unbeliever thinks is the absolutely most unproductive use of your time. Our reliance upon God is not very deep. The church in America is worldly. It's worldly. Is there really any tangible difference between us and our unbelieving neighbors? There are the basics. 
church attendance on Sundays and conservative views in politics. But would any of our neighbors remark about us that they're strange, they, they actually fear God. They live for God. They love and enjoy God. I, I've never seen anybody like that. How many abortions occur within our churches? You know, we like to cast out about, you know, abortions, wickedness, and, and, and cast out about the, the unbelief of this and the, the wickedness of the world. But how many abortions occur in our own churches? How, many, how much pornography is viewed by our church members? How many abortifacient contraceptives are used by Christians? How much has the love of money grounded us to this world? How much uh, bitterness and hateful rivalries divide us? How much does Scripture, rather than our feelings, determine our beliefs? Just like the world, we have our celebrities that we adore. The church has mastered social media. The church has mastered podcasting. The church has mastered videography. And it, it has certainly mastered marketing. And as their pastors are off getting makeup put on their faces for their next video, the sheep wander off cliffs and encounter wolves all by themselves. How is that different than that dispassionate work of New York Times columnists who write for the good of humanity while leaving their children home to learn of the world through the internet, for example? Church is worldly, and that is proven by her quick adoption of the media of the world. Someone somewhere said that the medium is the message, right? Perhaps the worldliness of the church is proven most in her despising of preaching. In her making preaching something other than God speaking through his ordained men for specific application to my life by the Holy Spirit... There is no podcast that will ever come close to the power of the word preached in the local body. As an act of liturgy, as an act of worship, as an act of the, the in-person, combined body. Preaching is not just information, it is not just pious suggestions, it is God working in his body. So it just, all of this, all of this, this combines to, to boggle the mind about the, the, the weakness of the church today in America. So has our Lord left us? Has the Lord left us? Are the angry men rising up against us going to swallow us alive? Are the waters going to engulf us? Are the raging waters of the swollen stream going to sweep over our souls? Well, if you think Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of this world, it might seem so. It might seem so. You should not have much encouragement. 
The church is weak. The state is ridiculously strong. The rulers of our age are godless. The minds of the young seem to be, to be dull and empty. The foundations crumble and the righteous are left just scratching their heads. What are we to do? And just like Darwinists hiding behind the veil of long stretches of time, we say that long stretches of time will prove that Christ's kingdom is of this world. But Christ's kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom transcends this world and is not coterminous with any nation on the earth. He is the king of a kingdom that reigns over the earth and reigns over the farthest corner of the universe. He knows, God knows and reigns at the point, I mean, he knows what happens beyond the event horizon of the black hole. He has that kind of reign. He knows the thoughts of every man, woman, child. He knows every one of your thoughts. He was there when the mountains were birthed and the stars cast out their first light. He knows how many microbes ride on the blade of a grass. Actually, he knows how many microbes ride on all the blades of grass. He knows the number of our days. One of the powers of the world, Pilate, questioned Jesus about his kingdom, and he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of this nation? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So what is my point in all this? If we look on things from a certain perspective, we might think that God has forsaken his people and that because we have no influence, no power, no respect, no place of importance, no honor in the world, we conclude that the Lord is not on our side. But that can't be right, the right conclusion because Christ's kingdom is not of the world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And therefore, it is not like the kingdoms of the world. It is categorically different. It is also categorically transcendent. It is indeed true that the gates of Christ's kingdom can never be assailed and overcome by the ugly opponents of his grace and kindness. Christ's kingdom weathers every assault, it weathers every attack, every flood of water, every raging of the kingdoms of the earth. And even though the church may seem weak, and tossed about by the various powers of the world and by schisms rent asunder and heresies distressed, the kingdom of Christ and his covenant promises to, many, to, to uh, marry his people, ugly as we may be, will come to pass. They will come to pass. The marriage supper of the feast will be the first meal of the kingdom of Christ, where Christ blesses his beloved and purified bride who have been brought to him out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now on those verses from John 18 that I shared with you, John Calvin has some helpful commentary, and I'm sorry, this is a long quote that I want to walk through. But it helps us 
wrap our heads around the importance of the teaching that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. What he says also helps us apply it to our situation in the church today. And so, here's what he says, and this is uh, from his commentary on John 18, uh, I think it's 36, my kingdom is not of this world. By these words, Jesus acknowledges that he is a king. But so far as was necessary to prove his innocence, he clears himself of the slander, for he declares that there is no disagreement between his kingdom and political government or order. As if he had said, this is, this is uh, now Calvin paraphrasing Jesus talking to Pilate, I am falsely accused as if I had attempted to produce a disturbance or to make a revolution in public affairs. I have preached about the kingdom of God, but that kingdom is spiritual and therefore you have no right to suspect me of aspiring to kingly power. Right? So he's saying to Pilate, yeah, I'm a king, but I haven't been angling to be the king of the Jews. I'm a king over king. This defense was made by Christ before Pilate, but the same doctrine is useful to believers to the end of the world. For if the kingdom of Christ were earthly, it would be frail and changeable, because the form of this world is passing away. But now, since it is pronounced to be heavenly, this assures us of its perpetuity. Thus, should it happen that the whole world were overturned, Provided that our consciences are always directed to the kingdom of Christ, they will nevertheless remain firm, not only amidst shakings and convulsions, but even amidst dreadful ruin and destruction. In other words, there could be destruction all over us. The world could be turned up and down. The nations could crumble and rise. But our eyes are focused on the kingdom of Christ, and so we can be steady. If we are cruelly treated by wicked men, still our salvation is secured by the kingdom of Christ, which is not subject to the caprice of men. In short, though there are innumerable storms by which the world is continually agitated, the kingdom of Christ, in which we ought to seek tranquility, is separated from the world. We are taught also what is the nature of this kingdom. For if it made us happy according to the flesh, okay, now he's talking about the nature of the kingdom of Christ. If it made us happy according to the flesh, made us rich, and brought us riches, luxuries, and all that is desirable for the use of the present life, it would smell of the earth and of the world. But now, though our condition be apparently wretched, still our true happiness remains unimpaired. We learn from it also who they are that belong to this kingdom, those who, having been renewed by the Spirit of God, contemplate the heavenly life and holiness and righteousness. Yet it deserves our attention likewise, that it is not said that the kingdom of Christ is not in this world, for we know that it has its seat in our hearts, as also Christ says elsewhere, the kingdom of God is within you. But strictly speaking, the kingdom of God, while it dwells in us, is a stranger to the world because its condition is totally different. He goes on, he goes on to talk about the this, this statement, my servants would be fighting if my kingdom were of this world. He says, he proves that he did not aim at an earthly kingdom because no one moves, no one takes arms in his support. 
For if a private individual lay claim to royal authority, he must gain power by means of seditious men. Nothing of this kind is seen in Christ, and therefore it follows that he is not an earthly king. But here a question arises. Is it not lawful to defend the kingdom of Christ by arms? So he stops in this commentary. He's like, isn't it lawful to defend the kingdom of Christ with, with swords and guns? For when kings and princes are commanded to kiss the Son of God, Psalm 2, not only are they enjoined to submit to his authority in their private capacity, but also to employ all their power that they possess in defending the church and maintaining godliness. I answer first, they who draw this conclusion that the doctrine of the gospel and the pure worship of God ought not to be defended by arms are unskillful and ignorant reasoners. For Christ argues only from the facts of the case in hand how frivolous were the slanders which the Jews had brought against him. Secondly, though godly kings defend the kingdom of Christ by the sword, still it is done in a different manner from that in which worldly kingdoms are wont to be defended. For the kingdom of Christ being spiritual must be founded on the doctrine and power of the Spirit. In the same manner too, its edification is promoted. For neither the laws and edicts of men nor the punishments inflicted by them enter into the consciences. Yet this does not hinder princes from accidentally defending the kingdom of Christ, partly by appointing external discipline and partly by lending their protection to the church against wicked men. So he's, he's trying to figure out church and state relations. When does his church get protected by the state and those things? And yet he wants to maintain that the, the kingdom of Christ is spiritual and the kingdom of man is worldly. And then he says this, and this is the end of the quote. It results, however, that it re- results, however from the depravity of the world. Listen to this. It results from the depravity of the world that the kingdom of Christ is strengthened more by the blood of the martyrs than by the aid of arms. The world is depraved. The, the power of the world is depraved. The world is depraved and, will, will, uh, and we see it in our nation. We see the absurdity that is being fought for and and who's being resisted, and, and, and persecutions that we hadn't faced before rising. And so the, the world is depraved, and yet, because Christ's kingdom is spiritual, Calvin says, the church and her witness will be strengthened more by the blood of the martyrs than by the aid of swords and guns. That last statement is profound. What libertarian would ever argue for that? The blood of the martyrs is going to strengthen the church. If we look around us and make assessments about whether God is on our side because of the success and ease of the church, which always leads to godlessness, we might be tempted during times of persecution to think that God is against us and that the kingdom of Christ is failing. Not so. Not so. When the heat of persecution is tearing at the church, 
That is no sign that Christ's kingdom is not progressing or that Jesus is not reigning currently as the king of the world. And to long that the you know, arms of the world, revolution is another word for that, come to the aid of the spiritual kingdom is just absolute foolishness. It is God's will to bring victory out of what appears to be defeat. Christ's triumph in death and the church will triumph through martyrdom. It's only when the church is weak, as I outlined earlier, that martyrdom is seen as losing. When the church is weak and worldly, martyrdom seems like losing. Worldlings have a tendency to be, you know, worldlings. But those who live in Christ's kingdom know that to die is gain, that the world is not our home, that we live for a city whose foundation and architect is God, that there is no better proof of the strength, the godliness, the maturity of Christ's church than when her people are willing to die because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I mean, that really is my goal as a pastor in this church, is just to prepare you to die. That's it. That's all I really want. That's what I feel a burden on my shoulders about. I just want to prepare you to die well. I don't primarily want to make of you activists, though that will be some of our work. Right? I want you to so love the Lord, to so love his kingdom, to, to uh, so love the present reality of your citizenship in heaven that you cling loosely to this world and are willing to die whether you are young and vigorous or old and decrepit or anywhere in between. As we step back and think about this, I, I think this is why those who are members of Christ's kingdom should be more intent on reforming the church than they should be in redeeming the institutions of this world. God is on the side of the church, and it is her sins that grieve him, and yet her sins for which Christ died. The church, as ugly as she may be, is the apple of God's eye because she is the nursery of the citizens of Christ's kingdom, bought out from slavery to sin and redeemed by his blood. So in a sense, it's appropriate to, you know, it's, it's appropriate to rail against the sins of God's people and less appropriate to rail against the sins of the institutions and people of this world. Judgment begins with the household of God. We have pity on the world. We should have pity on the world. We should pity the world. We have pity on the world and we invite her people to believe in Jesus. To come to Christ and by God's grace they will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son. The Lord is on the side of the church, and because so, we are safe. We are safe, though we might be drawn and quartered. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. 
Our soul has escaped as a, our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If we avoid being torn by the teeth of our enemies, it's only because of his blessing. It will never be because of the cleverness of our intelligence, the creativity of our media, even the boldness of our speeches and stands. It will only be because of God's blessed protection. And though it may look like we're being uh, left out to dry, pushed from the kingdom of this world, hated by the world, persecuted, hungry, naked, hacked to pieces like sheep to be slaughtered, we still overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We still conquer. And it's the meek who will inherit the earth. The citizens of Christ's kingdom, those who by his good grace shout their allegiance to him, though they die the death of a martyr, or especially as they die as, as the death of a martyr, will never be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The martyrdom of Stephen, the deacon, was in no way an indication that God had forsaken his church. Weak and sinful as her church His church may have been. In no uncertain terms, Stephen had called to the Sanhedrin men who should have known better to repent. He calls them very aggressively to repent. But after he did so, they took up their sword or stones, as it were, and sent him on to the next world. Even as they did so, he pitied them. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He pitied the world. He pitied this, these poor, poor, wretched, unbelieving Jews. And then he fell asleep only to wake up to a welcome in Christ's kingdom. Well done. The kingdoms of this earth rise and fall by God's design. They at times are more righteous than at other times. They are temporary and relatively impotent. They are ministers of God, yes, called to promote what is good and punish what is evil. They have authority from God, but they are not Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, will never fail, is always perfectly righteous, is eternal and unbeatable ruling over all and to all eternity. If you were born in Zion, if you were born again in Christ as a citizen of that kingdom, you will never be lost. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and how does that hymn finish? His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. Amen?